Hey, .NET Rocks fans. Richard and I are going to be at the Dev Intersection Conference at the Marriott Grand Lakes in Orlando, Florida, April 13th through 16th. Come see your favorite speakers, Scott Guthrie, Scott Hanselman, John Papa, Billy Hollis, Brian Noyes, Dan Wallin, Todd Anglin, Tim Huckabee, Michelle Bustamante, Miguel Castro, Duval Lowy, Kathleen Dollard, and many more. Go to devintersection.com to register now. You'll save 200 bucks if you register on or before February 24th, $100 if you register between February 25th and March 31st, and you can save an additional 50 bucks by specifying .NET Rocks is how you heard about the conference. More details at devintersection.com. We'll see you in April. .NET Rocks episode 948 with guest Jonathan Zuck. Recorded live Thursday, January 30th, 2014. This episode is brought to you by Telerik, offering the best in developer tools and support. Online at telerik.com. And by Franklin's.net, makers of Gesture Pack, a powerful gesture recording and recognition system for Microsoft Connect for Windows developers. Details at gesturepak.com. And now, here are Carl and Richard. Thank you very much. Welcome back to .NET Rocks. It's Carl and Richard, and uh, we're back from the road trip, finally. This is our first recording in the studio since being on the road all those months. Home is good, man. Oh, my God. Yeah. Great time we had, though, huh? Yeah, we did have a lot of fun. And uh, we probably made a lot of new listeners. So if you came out to one of those events, thank you very much. And if you didn't and you're a new listener, well, thanks anyway. <laughs> I'm thanks glad for, you're listening. Glad you're listening. Yeah. We hope we don't disappoint. And we, we always start off the show with some crazy music and a little uh, thing that we call, you better know a framework. All right, buddy, what do you got? Well, I know my friend, Mr. Zook, is an avid photographer, videographer, and filmmaker. And I recently came across a couple of cameras that uh, are 4K cameras. And as you know, 4K is basically twice as wide and twice as high as 1080p. Yep. So basically four times the pixels, 3840 by 2160. And um, up until now, most 4K cameras were 10,000 bucks in that kind of that kind of price. Mm-hmm. There have been a couple in the $6,000 range, but I found one in the $5,000 range. If you go to tinyurl.com slash Sony 4K cam, this is the 4K Handycam camcorder FDR-AX1 by Sony again, and it's uh, $4,500. You don't think of Sony as a sort of cost-effective product. They tend to be pricey. I agree. Yeah, I agree. But, uh, you know, they're trying to trying to bring the price down nice and this is uh you know this is right on their website so you can take a look at everything that's in the box and uh, i'm interested to hear what jonathan has to say about uh 4k and about some of these cameras i don't know if he's been using them but we'll ask him when he comes on i think you i think you just solved the 5k question for this show just like that well what's great about 4k so for me it, you know, let's say you're you're filming an event and you have one camera right. in the back, and that's your back shot, right? You that's your go-to shot. You have some floating cameras on the side, uh, maybe closer close-up cameras up front, but you always have that camera and a tripod in the back that frames the whole event, and that's your go-to camera. But sometimes you want to use that to like zoom in on stuff digitally. You know what I mean? Uh, you you really sure. don't want somebody back there zooming in. You want to keep that steady. But what if you could zoom in and in digitally and not lose quality? And that's where that extra, you know, those extra pixels come in handy. Sure. So you can you can zoom in twice and uh, still retain 
uh, you know, HD quality if you're putting out an HD video. Right. So there you go. Which you might as well be because nobody has a 4K monitor. Yeah, nobody has 4K monitor. So, <laughs> so if that wasn't cheap enough, I found another Sony Handycam, a 4K cam, for $2,000. Wow. Tinyurl.com slash Sony 4K cheap. And this is the FDR-AX100 slash B. Doesn't exist on Sony's website, but it does exist on Amazon. And it will be released on March 21st, 2014. And guess what? They're all sold out. So high demand. uh, Doesn't exist yet. Um, No reviews, obviously, because it doesn't exist yet. But everybody's buying, you know, putting in an order for these things. And uh, March 21st is when they're they're coming in. So it looks more like a, a handheld cam, but it's a 4K camera. It's all about that sensor, right? Yeah. Interesting. 14 megapixel resolution video and 20 megapixel still image capture. So there, there you, you go. go. Okay. Have fun. Know it, learn it, love it. Just a little side thing, you know. We'll see what happens, and I, I'm interested to see what Jonathan says when he comes on. But uh, that's it. Richard, who's talking to us? Hey, I grabbed a comment off of show 852, and that is the one we did with Cord Davis a while back about the ethics of big data. Mm. And, you know, that was an interesting conversation, just the fact that we can know so much about people. I think even Cord cited this sort of canonical example now of, uh, big data is able to find out that someone is pregnant before they, they may even <laughs> yeah, realize yeah. they're pregnant, or certainly they've told anybody else. Right. Uh, and uh, this comment comes from uh, a, the name John49. So maybe he's being a little secretive. And it's mm. from a while ago. But he says, personally, I fear governments with big data more than big companies. Government can do much worse things with data than companies can. Of course, when there is a merging of companies and government, who knows what diabolical things they can do? What is the government capable of doing with data? Oh, you know, maybe create internment camps for everyone that is Japanese or target you as a person to groom as a homeland terrorist. Never do that, would they? Or send over predator drones because your father was a suspected terrorist. Hmm. I guess that would be the reason why I don't like companies to hold the data because they willingly or unwillingly will let the government get the data as well, Mm -hmm. which is very prescient of you, John, from a year ago. Right. You know, considering the revelations coming out of the Snowden incident. Yeah. That, yeah, you know, when that data gets collected, you've got to presume it's going to be accessed by certain organizations, whether you want it to or not. Right. Uh, And always a fun and challenging thing to talk about as far as privacy and uh, information is concerned. So, John, thank you so much for your comment. A .NET Rocks mug is on its way to you. And if you'd like a .NET Rocks mug, just write a comment on the website at .NET Rocks.com or on any of our mobile apps. We've got them for Windows 8, Windows Phone 7 and 8, iOS, and Android. And those apps are built by Diatom Enterprises. Who'd love to build you an app? Just go to DiatomEnterprises.com. And before we go any further, let me tell you that Pluralsight provides comprehensive developer training online. They have hundreds of hardcore developer training courses authored by MVPs and industry experts. They still release over 40 new courses every month and offer a 10-day free trial of 200 minutes. Pluralsight offers a wide range of topics, including coverage of iOS, Java, Android, web development, and pretty much anything and everything you can think of on the Microsoft stack. Try Pluralsight today. Subscription plans start at just $29 a month. And with that, let us welcome back to the show our good friend Jonathan Zook. He is a widely known and respected leader in the technology industry. Since assuming leadership of the Association for Competitive Technology, Jonathan has provided analysis, commentary, and background information on a wide range of technology issues to the media, to the public, and to Congress. He's been called on as a technology expert for the major news networks, including CNN, CNBC, and ABC. He's a frequent contributor to national and local radio news programs and is consistently quoted in the trade and popular press. A prolific writer whose work has appeared in trade pubs, including PC Magazine, PC Week, Windows Tech Journal, and in several books, Jonathan is in high demand as a speaker at trade conferences around the world. Welcome back, Jonathan. Hey, fellas. Great to be here. Great to, great to have you. First of all, what do you think of these 4K cameras? Have you got your hands on one yet? I, I don't own one yet. I mean, for largely the reason that you uh, you mentioned, they've, they've been pretty high priced and there isn't a lot of 4K output uh, at this juncture. But uh, I mean, people are using them more and more as let me get a really big picture and then 
you know, crop in and post, mm. uh, you know, later on, make that decision later on to crop in. I mean, yeah. part of the problem is you move down the price range, though, is that even though your sensor can handle 4K or produce 4K, if the glass isn't as good, if you yeah. can't change lenses, et cetera, you're still going to be held back in terms of what you can do with that camera. So, I mean, it's that, that's sort of the give and take of it. And, and, you know, Carl, you've done some filmmaking, too. I mean, sure. When you when you want to when you want to move the camera, you really want to move the camera because mm-hmm. right? there's a there's a parallaxing effect that happens when you move a camera versus doing a digital zoom on, on a fixed frame like that that you're really missing out on. So I'm I'm still a fan right now of spending the money on a dolly uh, rather than going out and getting a 4K camera yeah. for zooming purposes. Yeah, it's really true. I mean, if there was a great plugin that allowed me to get something that looked like a camera movement, uh, you know, just by sort of moving my mouse around you know, in a premiere or final cut, then, then, then I'd be a little more interested uh, in that. But you know, you'd really, to do anything like that takes a lot of work. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I mean, what, what makes film dynamic is when that camera is actually moving, when things appear from behind other things or when the camera passes things and you really change perspective. Sure. Yeah. And that, that, that's what makes the film really exciting. I agree. I agree. Well, it is interesting, and it, I'm glad the prices are coming down, and uh, it should be a should be a fun future for 4K, especially oh, for in sure, the camera. For sure. Yeah. So there's a lot going on uh, recently with software patents that uh, you uh, felt compelled to talk about it, and um, <laughs> let's let's talk. What's going on? The president just mentioned it in the State of the Union. Nice. Uh, you know, a couple of days ago. And what's really funny about that is a year ago, there was an Onion article on President Mentions, Software Patents, uh, and uh, Robert Altman Films in State of the Union Address, right? And As it, if it was funny satire, right? Well, the, it was satire at the time, right? It's so yeah. obscure. It was one of the things being discussed in Congress at the time. But it certainly didn't make the grade of the State of the Union. And yet here it is, right? It's, it's in the State of the Union address. I mean, a, a lot of people are surprised by that. And, and so it's a topic that's getting increasing discussion and debate uh, here in Washington as it has around the world. So what did he say exactly in his State of the Union? Well, all he said is we need to have comprehensive patent reform, right? I mean, it's a pretty neutral statement. I mean, the irony is that we had fairly comprehensive uh, at least litigation reform just two years ago in t- 2012, right? And, uh, and so, um, what's, what's happening right now, what's driving reform efforts right now is the so called hard to define, but still terrifying patent trolls, right? Right. So the, the basic problem is patents have gotten out of hand. You can't, uh, you can't write software without feeling the threat of being sued. If you're successful, yeah, and I and I wonder if it's patents that have gotten out of hand or reporting on patents that's gotten out of hand, et cetera. Because obviously, I look around and I see a lot of software being written and a lot of innovation happening. So I'm not. It's not clear to me that innovation is is under uh, a sort of Damocles in in the same you know uh, level that maybe it's portrayed. But there are certainly some people that I, I think could be described as abusers of the patent system. And, and a lot of this comes down to how they do business more so than the business that they're in. You know, for example, I mean, one of the things that you might define a patent troll is that they create a shell corporation. So you don't really know who owns the patent. Mm. And then they send a vaguely worded letter out to thousands of people saying, we believe you violated our patent. And they don't tell you what patent it is or why it is or what it is you've done that they think violates it. And so the, there's the, there's a fear factor created with these demand letters. And so a, a lot of that has to do with the fact that uh, you know, how people are doing business. Well, it, yeah, this seems to be a very fine line between software patent enforcement and extortion. Well, and, and again, I mean, I, I don't think there is such a fine line in a way. I mean, I, I think extortion is extortion is extortion, right? And so... Um, a lot of the reforms that are on the table right now have to do with the way certain companies are doing business. I mean, we need to remember that there are still important patents and that everybody that has a patent and wants to enforce it against you isn't a troll, right? I mean, I, that's, that there are people that do genuine innovation, that uh, invent new ways to solve problems that, uh, that we've all come to rely on. And there are big companies that 
feel like they're big enough that they can just steal those ideas and, and tromp on the startup that, that's trying to use a patent to protect itself. And so, I mean, that group still exists. And so the idea is to find some balance whereby you, you know, uh, you know, love the, love the sinner and hate, hate the sin, which is, you know, sort of a way of doing business that feels underhanded and that feels like extortion. And, and can we get at those abusers of the system um, in a way that does minimal damage to those that are using the system legitimately? I guess that that's the question is, what's the legitimate use of a software patent? Well, I mean, that's, that's a pretty broad philosophical debate, right? I mean, you, I, I, don't, I, I'm, I don't ascribe to the notion that there's something innately bad about a software patent. I mean, more and more of the innovations that are happening that, that still require lots of R&D and still require investment of venture capitalists, et cetera, are being implemented via software, right? So the, so the fact that that's my method of implementation rather than uh, a welding iron uh, shouldn't change the patentability uh, of that invention. I, again, I think the real issue has to do with the fact that uh, a lot of bad patents got through in the late 90s. And um, I mean, the good news is that most patents in the hands of patent trolls are probably 12 years old now, 12 to 15 years old. And, um, you know, in another five years, they'll be, uh, you know, inert because uh, there's only a 20 year shelf life. For so patents. who makes the call about what is a good patent and what is a bad patent? And it, I mean, it sounds like you you're saying that you have some some judgment to make about, you know, what what is valid and what is not. I mean, who who draws those lines? And I and 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 the, and the, the body that has uh, throughout history drawn those lines is the Patent and Trademark Office, right? The people to whom you apply for a patent. Um, and uh, you know the patent is the invention is deemed patentable if uh, if the invention is new, uh, useful, and uh, non-obvious, right? And so you know a lot of what goes into a research about a patent is really testing whether it's new and they examine something called prior art to make that determination and then also uh is it non-obvious right is it is it something that people schooled in the art uh would come up with uh you know instantly themselves or easily themselves right and and you know for a time there during the the big dot-com craze there was a lot of patents being filed because there was a lot of venture capital money that, you know, was flowing freely, et cetera. Um, and, uh, a lot of law firms doing these applications on spec and things. And, uh, you know, I, I think that some of these things got by them. They didn't have particularly good prior art searches or the expertise internally to make those calls. And I, th I think a lot of that got cleaned up in, in, uh, in 2012 with some of the reforms. Um, the, the, the patents office has always been crippled to some extent by, something they call fee diversion, which basically is that the patent office is not allowed to charge you more for your patent than it costs them to evaluate your patent. But then those fees then go to Congress, who allocates some subset of that money to the patent office to actually do its work. Mm. So, so if it costs $100 to evaluate a patent, I charge you $100. I give that money to Congress, they give me 40 and I'm expected to do my job. And, and those are some of the problems that uh, yeah. we were facing up until 2012. Um, so some things have gotten through that, you know, a lot of us, you know, consider to be obvious. And, and then there's other things that there are, we consider obvious 12 years later, too. That's another problem is that people who have made patents before technology has, uh, you know, before the technology has matured, and then they sit on those patents, some other big company comes around and utilizes them, and then this little guy's got a patent, and the little guy has absolutely no recourse because he has no money and way to fight it because it's kind of ridiculous at that point. Like, I, I've given this example before many years ago, uh, USA Video. This guy actually lives in my town. Um he in, he has a patent on the transmission of video over a network, period. The digitization and the transmission of video over a network. And that was in the 80s. He got that patent. And uh, he, you know, basically tried to collect on that, you know. But how? How can you possibly? Who Who first? You know, I mean, anything that's internet video, YouTube, uh, Microsoft, Google, I mean, 
everybody with a website that has a link to a video? You're yeah, no, I mean, them? I, I, I mean, and that's and and that is one of the challenges. I mean, one of the one of the problems that I think has evolved in the patent system is that the lawyers, you know, feel like they're not doing their job unless they describe the invention as broadly as possible. So there's a part of a patent application that's called the claims, which is, you know, what am I claiming to be my invention? And the first one is always super broad, right? You know, it's the, the transmission of video over the internet. And then right around claim 13 is where you get to the invention, right? Mm. And, and so very often that first claim looks like an idea and the 10th claim looks like an invention. And mm. so what happens often is when these things are challenged in court, is that many of the claims are thrown out and then when the patent is sort of whittled down to what was actually invented, then everyone has a clearer picture about whether or not the company infringed on that patent or not, right? So, I mean, you can't patent an idea. It has to be an invention, an actual solution to a problem. But th that first claim is often as broad as it can be because that's the lawyer thinking he's doing his job. You've always got to read past that first paragraph. And didn't we have a law passed just a, f a few years ago, maybe 2006 or 2007, that actually simplified patents, like it limited the number of claims you could make? Yeah, I mean, there have been a number of things. There's some Supreme Court decisions that have had some impact. And, and as I said, there was the American Innovates Act that happened uh, in 2012 that did some simplification and also uh, led to some training inside the patent office, made it easier for the... Uh, uh, the patent office to look outside of its own research materials for prior art. It added some post-grant uh, review processes so that if a patent comes out of the patent office, uh, you know, there's a few months there where somebody can challenge it and say, hey, wait a minute, I've seen something like this before. And, and all it takes is that invention existing prior to that patent to invalidate the patent, right? Right. So it's, you know, so there's, there's a number of things that were implemented at that time that I believe are probably doing a long way to clean up the patents that are coming out of the office now. The, so the, the problem is the sort of legacy patents, you know, from the, from the late nineties that are still in force and that many of which have found their way into the hands of uh, an aftermarket, right? You know, the, the company itself went out of business and somebody bought their patents and now is trying to enforce those patents against potential infringers and in some instances that's legitimate and sometimes it isn't and so the patent reform efforts that are happening right now in congress are really focused on the way people are pursuing um uh you know infringement claims and the specificity with which they're doing it and the transparency with which they're doing it because i you know if, if all you do is receive a spam demand letter a lot of people would recommend you just throw it in a drawer and forget about it because if they haven't made a specific enough accusation, then uh, you can probably just ignore it, hmm. which is frankly what happens most of the time. Um, you know, you, there's a lot of news stories about these demand letters, but the truth is that the number of people that we know that, that, that have really been dragged into court over things, et cetera, is, is a lot smaller. But it's created an environment of, of apprehension for sure. Isn't there a Supreme Court case coming up now involving that might actually overturn software patents in general? Talking about uh, Alice versus CLS Bank International. That's right. I mean, there is a, there are uh, conversations about that, and then software patents are a uh, is is a bit of a misnomer. There's this concept called a business method patent, and and software is just one way to implement the, uh, a business method, right? And so. A lot of what kind of blew up uh, uh, were uh, patents in the financial services market for, you know, coming up with really interesting financial schemes that uh, we've now since uh, discovered have undermined the economy. But there was a lot of patents and a lot of banks are trying to pursue changes uh, that specific to those financial uh, analysis patents. Right. And uh, so that, that's leading to more and more discussion of these issues. There's really no such thing as a software patent. And so the question is just going to be you know, how do I really define in more, with greater specificity what's patentable and what isn't in the realm of business method patents? Interesting. And, he, and if the Supreme Court rules, I mean, it's CLS Bank that's trying to say that this patent doesn't make sense that the Alice Corporation has. If the mm -hmm. Supreme Court ruled in their favor, does that actually overthrow the category? It, it, it's completely up to the Supreme Court whether that's the case. 
I mean, more often than not, the Supreme Court tries to be as specific as possible in their right. rulings. Right? I mean, you know, unless we're dealing with civil rights or something like that, they're not generally trying to throw out, you know, cause the revisiting of an entire uh, spectrum of patents. So I, 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 I find that to be unlikely. I think it will certainly cause some issues, it will lead to more reform efforts, and it might create some tightening of how those definitions are made in the, in the area of business methods. But it's, it's very unlikely that the court would be so activist as to say, okay, you can't have these kinds of patents. These are done. Because New Zealand's done that, right? Back in uh, summer of 2013, they said no more software patents. They did. That's right. And, um, and, and so part of the, uh, you know, and uh, I, 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 you know, there's the, that was received with uh, mixed reviews around the world, right? About sure. whether that was the right answer to things. Because, you know, I mean, I, one of the dumbest patents, you know, that, that ever got granted was for a peanut butter and jelly sandwich with the crust cut off. Right? What? And, uh, <laughs> and so it's kind of a joke, right? And, and nobody's ever come up with an enforcement action on it. But, you know, one way to prevent a patent like that would be to, you know, eliminate patents involving bread, right? And, right. and, and, <laughs> and that would work, right? It, it, would, it would solve the problem, but it would also mean that, you know, have the potential to chill innovation and, you know, production methods, you know, wheat conversion, you know, all these other things that are happening in the world of bread, right, that, that might legitimately be patentable, right? And so, uh, you know, there's this sort of baby-in-a-bathwater approach that uh, may not be the best one. You know, the piece that hasn't really been proven, in my mind at least, is that someone without a patent is somehow in danger, that you have a good idea, and because you didn't patent it, you didn't get advantage of that idea. Like, it seems, I just don't, it, 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 it's one of those things that's like, everybody presumes that's true, and, and I don't know that it actually is. And it, I think it really, uh, you know, depends on the idea, Right. I mean, when all is said and done, Richard, it's a it's a question about whether or not there's an invention there, right? An right. idea isn't an invention. And so, again, in the late 90s, venture capitalists were pressing their startups, right, their portfolio companies to try and patent every whiteboard uh, diagram that they did, right? And and that that was a primary mechanism for protection of ideas. And obviously, there's many business models that lead to success. You know, Instagram didn't uh, use a patent for its valuation, right? It was the people they'd managed to get collected, you know, because uh, there were other companies doing the same thing, right? So it was the, the people that they'd managed to attract and, and, and that, that led to the valuation of that company. But there's other companies that are doing something, uh, you know, more interesting, a little trickier, et cetera, that, that were more R&D based that might have something patentable. And so I think you can't make a blanket statement about whether or not you're at risk of losing value uh, with without a patent without looking a little deeper in into what it is you might patent hmm well and you get back to this whole game of patents are only valuable because people are willing to pay for them like it's it's this artificial currency well and and that's uh, yes but but richard we could get pretty philosophical i mean uh, clearly the canadian dollar is only valuable if people are willing to pay for it and that's always in question right yeah, but so generally I mean, speaking, I, there's 35 million people being the Canadian population said, yeah, where, where it, patents we're talking about you down to individuals, typically some very wealthy and some not. No, to, yes, yes and no. But, you know, it, the question, if you look at it, for example, an automobile, there are thousands of patents in a typical automobile. Right. Right. So the fact that a, a product requires thousands of licenses isn't innately a barrier to that product coming to market. Uh, a CAT scan has thousands of patents in it, right? And so, I mean, you know, and every one of those has gone some distance to make that product better. And frankly, some of the patents that are embedded in CAT scans have to do with, you know, data processing, right? And, and are implemented via software. So, I mean, so the, so the, the issue is, you know, I, if I can protect my R&D, I'm more likely to invest in that R&D. If I can't protect it, I will take my money someplace else. I'll invest it in building a factory or something like that. And I still argue that core concept. I don't invest in R&D to get a patent. I invest in R&D to get a competitive advantage. And that competitive advantage is being a first mover, not so sometimes, much that I have a patent around it. Sometimes it's being a first mover, but sometimes a patent is exactly the thing that will that will allow you to 
reap the benefit of that uh, of that R and D. I guess I mean, the other I, question here is: Have you actually? Do we actually see cases where a patent has stopped a competitor from existing? Or do, you know, I keep going back to the to the Wright brothers case. They spent so they wasted so much time defending their patents around the aircraft. They stopped building airplanes. That that's right. I mean, there's plenty of anecdotes, right? But the, I mean, the the norm of the patent system is actually licensing. But, I mean, you're 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 focusing on the exception and not the rule. I mean, in in most instances, patents is all over biotech, uh, technology, engineering, etc. Are, are inventions that people consider legitimate and they are able to leverage those inventions and add on to them in order to bring out an addition, a new product. And so it's not, um, it, it, it's, it's not the norm that, uh, that people spend all their time defending their patents or that, uh, or that they spend all their time defending against patents, et cetera. That, that's still the exception case. It doesn't mean we shouldn't do what we can to reform that situation to mitigate. Uh, those problems but it's still the exception it's not the rule hey richard you know what time it is uh must be that happy time again that's right it's time for me to file a patent claim for my new automatic frivolous patent application form filler outer <laughs> that'd be pretty uh, cool wouldn't it? frivolous apps wouldn't it be great just come up with a frivolous patent you know gen- frivolous patent generator <laughs> there's an app you can write jonathan there you go yeah exactly <laughs> um and, well, and, and, uh, you know, I, I think in the late nineties, uh, you, you probably would have made some sales and some of those patents would have gotten through. Absolutely. And, and so it's for a, sure. And you would have, and you would have IPO'd for millions. And, and that's why there's some reform efforts happening now. It's actually time to give away Telerik DevCraft Complete Collection to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. But first, let me tell you about the all new Telerik platform. This is the only modular platform that combines a rich set of UI tools with powerful cloud services to develop web, hybrid, and native apps. You can develop in the browser, on your desktop, or using Visual Studio using a variety of language technologies, .NET, Java, HTML5, JavaScript, and PHP. Very, very cool, very new. Check it out at telerik.com slash platform. And don't forget to thank them for supporting .NET Rocks. All right, man, who won? Today's winner is Jeffrey Hamby. Congratulations, Jeffrey. Have clap. you got the clappers? I got the clapper. I'm in the I studio, I haven't heard the man. clappers in months. Yeah. <laughs> of course I got the clapper, man. That's awesome. Uh, by the way, thank you for that wonderful bottle of scotch. It just arrived. My Christmas oh, present. Oh, yes. That single barrel Daluane. What is so special about that Daluane 15 besides the fact that it looks like it's ancient? Uh, it is from a one specific barrel from a very rare collection. Uh, there's maybe less than 300 of those bottles in the world. Wow. And uh, Daluane's one of those. It's a DeGio distillery. Right. And so those are the guys who own Johnny Walker. Right. And they don't normally do bottlings. Normally that gets blended into different Johnny Walkers. Right. So I, I noticed that uh, at the whiskey shop in London, I you, you pointed out that the Daluane, which was a flora and fauna bottling, it's a, it's a distillery, not a label. Um, that was sitting there and you said, that's the most interesting bottle here. So I bought it and I gave it as a gift. Right. But now I have one. Now and and I well, what I got you for Christmas is an even rarer one. A, a De Geo bottling is one thing. Yeah, that is a single barreling. Well, uh, and let me tell you, I had a taste of it and it punched my lights out. That is a strong, <laughs> strong. It's what is it? Fifty five percent alcohol. Yeah, because it's straight out of the barrel. Enough chit chat. We just gave away a Telerik DevCraft Complete Collection to Jeffrey Hamby. He just won. It's about two thousand dollars worth of stuff. Everything that Telerik does in one box. And uh, if you don't know what we're talking about, go to .nerox.com, click on the Get Free Stuff button, answer a few questions, and join our fan club. We have thousands of members all over the world. We'd like to give away stuff to you, too. Every show, we give away a Telerik DevCraft Complete Collection, and every December, we give away $5,000 worth of stuff, technology, toys, to one lucky member of that fan club. We've done it two years now. We'd like to ask our guests in every show, Jonathan Zook. If you had $5,000 to spend on technology, I know he's going to ask. He's going to get the camera. <laughs> what would you buy? I would buy up all of the Carl Franklin music CDs that I could find. Uh, you couldn't possibly buy them all. No, just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I know they're expensive. But, yeah, you know. no. They, that, would, that would be about 100 bucks. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I have bought them all, so I know. Yeah, you have bought them all. Yeah. 
Yeah, actually, it'd be but, twenty. Uh, There's two. So, <laughs> no, seriously, but, uh, if you you know. So what? To, what? To, what I? What would you buy I with five five thousand dollars? Yeah. Well, that's an interesting question. Um, I'm trying to think. I mean, it. I, you know, I, I because I direct films, I often wonder whether I should be wasting money on cameras or or spending the money on scripts or developing projects as opposed because it's so easy to get caught up in buying gear. Yep, I agree. That you're not producing anything. What right? you really so, need is buy yourself some free time so that you can write. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. So I would probably buy the time of a personal assistant. <laughs> that's great. That's a great idea. With my five thousand dollars. <laughs> time is more important than money in many cases. Very often stuff. Is. Yeah. Excellent. I like that answer. Awesome. Good stuff. Yeah. Yeah. So, Jonathan, uh, we're talking a little bit about the licensing of patents, and it seems to me, especially in the U.S., there are now these sort of conglomerations of companies that own pools of patents that leave them on the inside of the patent loop for certain technologies and everybody else on the outside. Yeah. I mean, there are um, companies that uh, some of them are called, you know, patent assertion entities and some of them are called non-practicing entities or NPEs. And so everybody's trying to come up with a word for them because some of them behave like trolls and some of them don't. Um, and, and it can be frustrating, um, to look at a company like that that's invested in a patent portfolio um, and wonder why it is I'm paying license fees to them. And I, and, and that is a topic of, of some debate. I guess the issue, though, is that um, if there isn't an aftermarket for patents, then there isn't a value of patents. I mean, you have to make a decision fine once and for all whether a patent is valuable or not. And so if you look at the biotech industry, for example, um, none of the R&D uh, is taken to market by the people that do the R&D, right? It's literally because there's such a high cost of market entry, FDA approvals and everything like that, literally everything is licensed to a pharmaceutical company to actually turn into the drugs that we end up, you know, that end up on the market. And so that, that, that patent is, in fact, the asset in that case that gets purchased. And so, I mean, I, you can't be innately negative about companies that buy up portfolios of patents because it's the small businesses, et cetera, that sell them to them and then have funding to go do their next thing that leads to those portfolios. I, again, I think that's why the reform efforts that are, have been happening are really focused on the litigation side of this. Now, I mean, I frankly want to focus even more on the front end of the system to improve, you know, we always say garbage in, garbage out right. in the tech community. And, and, and I really believe that from the standpoint of a small business, litigation reform is um, you know, you close to useless because any litigation is putting me out of business, right? I mean, and so the so the the real issue for smaller businesses is you know like the ones that I represent is let's let's improve the patents coming into the system and and we won't have to worry as much about uh, how they get litigated after the fact. And I've always looked at litigation and put from the uh, somebody else I'm quoting here it says winning litigation is like winning an earthquake. <laughs> yeah. That's that's pretty good. I mean, huh. I've always, I've often said that the only good litigation reform uh, for small businesses is no litigation, mm, right? Right. I mean, I, I mean, that's that's the problem. I mean, you know, one of the debates that's going on right now is um, it's a little bit wonky, I guess, which is the DC equivalent of geeky. Um, yeah. Is is something called the covered business method uh, process that was put in place in 2012 specifically to deal with some of these financial patents. And basically, it's another review process. So if you've been accused of infringing on somebody's patent, you can use this process for the entire life of the patent to go back to the patent office and get them to reevaluate it, which on its face, you know, seems like a good idea. And, you know, it's regarded as a cheaper alternative to litigation, right? So instead of spending $3 million on a patent litigation, you're spending $500,000 on a reevaluation. But, you know, as you guys have both run small businesses, $500,000 just means I'm dead five times instead of uh, 25 times. Yeah, right. right. And so so it's, it's a distinction without a difference uh, in some respects, and yet has the effect of, of creating a constant state of uncertainty, right? Either I've got a patent or I don't, and if I want to go to investors or venture capitalists to invest in my 
business and I'm using my patent as a way to do that, with this hanging out there, there's not a, uh, you know, there's not a real incentive to invest in something that's that precarious. And uh, the irony, of course, is that to date, you know, uh, there's been, you know, m maybe a hundred of these filed because, again, it just started in 2012. Right. And, you know, something like 80 percent of them have been big companies dragging a uh, small business into there, you know, and uh, to drain them of their of their finances. Right. It hasn't been right. There haven't been any patent trolls. These have been actual companies with products that they either used to sell to this company that's taking them there or um, used to compete with them, right? I mean, I, you know, there's a company called, the American company called Versata that had a patent and, and they were a, a tiny competitor to SAP. And SAP finally decided, screw that, we're going to just implement this technology ourselves. We're going to advertise that we're implementing Versata technology and we're not going to pay them any license fee. And so they, that went to court. And it went to district court in front of a jury, and a jury awarded Versada $400 million or something like that. And, of course, that was appealed and was held up by the appeals court, which is usually where things get cleaned up if the jury made a mistake. And it went to another district court case, and then it, 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 it got redefined again, back up to appeals court, and they upheld it again. So it, it went through four court processes. How many years? that verdict you know, went up. I think it's like six years. So that's where it was. And then this law was passed. So then SAP took them to, uh, to, to this covered business method uh, process and, and to, you know, spend another two years and cost them another half a million dollars after it already been upheld, you know, twice, you know, by a court. And, and so it's not, you know, Versada isn't a patent troll, right? They're a big company that has plenty of money and, They're and, just bullies. Uh, and can just bully them, right? And, right. and that's what happened with DirecTV and... Um, um, TiVo, right? I mean, uh, TiVo got won so many <laughs> um, court decisions against DirecTV, and, and and DirecTV just kept refusing to to pay them. They kept being called into contempt of court, and I mean, it was amazing what DirecTV was willing to do to simply ignore the court decisions for years and years and years to drain TiVo of its resources. Yeah, and 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 you know, that's the thing. I mean, you might have the best intentions, and I think that's where this covered business method process is meant to be a, a low cost alternative to defend yourself against an infringement claim. But when 80% of the cases that are making their way there are big companies dragging small businesses that are real businesses that are actually have products in there, then I have to say that's a system that's not working. And, and one of the things that, and it's only started in 2012. And one of the things that's being proposed right now uh, by Chuck Schumer is making that permanent and, and having expand to even more different patent types. And, and so, I mean, one of the things, while we're really supportive of a lot of the reforms that are happening, this covered business method feels like something that it sounds like it's for small businesses, but, you know, the reality has been really quite different. And Gail Fritter, who uh, is an interesting character we've had on the show before, tweeted me a while back here and asked about how big do you need to be before you need to care about software patents? Like, what What's the yearly revenue? What's the size of a company that you even have a chance to play in this pond? Well, I mean, I, again, I think that's that's too blanket of assessment. That's sort of like your question about whether or not it's worth filing a patent. And and right. um, if if you have a good invention, it's worth having a it's worth having a patent. And the small businesses that have spent the money or sold off part of their company to a law firm in order to get a patent, I, I think have been glad that they did. You know, more often than not, right? Um, but yes, it, it, it can still be very costly to deal with defending your patent. It can be very, uh, costly to try and take somebody on for a, uh, a patent infringement case in order to defend yourself against an infringement claim. Um, and usually the license is a much cheaper alternative. And that, right. and that's, that's kind of why people like to call it extortion, right? Um, and sometimes it is right, but I mean, other times it's just a license, right? And and it's a, uh, um, you know, I used to buy stuff from Crescent Software to uh, to to plug into my applications. I've heard of them. I could have gotten it, you know, gotten a copy of it and used it instead of paying that license, right? You know, that, that's the that's the uh, 
I mean, that's the analogy, right? I mean, why, why should I pay somebody for this technology? Plenty of other people are paying for it. They're making plenty of money. Why do you need my money? Right. I mean, and, and that's the, uh, and the truth of the matter is, you know, a lot of work went into creating that stuff. Right. And so I, you just have to be, uh, careful in the glibness with which we discuss. Can you imagine if, if this kind of attitude existed anymore in the music business? I mean, it just doesn't. <laughs> which attitude? The attitude that people are paid for their work. I mean, it just doesn't well, I, exist I, in I the mean, music business. Obviously, I still say that, that's still my attitude about music. Well, it's, <laughs> right? not, it's I mean, not the reality, though. I mean... No, it's, it's a very tough situation. And people will tell you, you should change your business model, right? Yeah. Make your money on T-shirts. Well, that's what they do. I mean, that's essentially what people have to do. They have to tour and sell merch to make money in music. Yeah. You don't sell music anymore. Not even guys like John Schofield sell albums anymore. Yeah, that somehow that mod, the theft of music has become the norm. Yeah, and it's become okay, yeah. and nobody's going to go after. I mean, you know, the what was it? The MPAA tried going after people and making a a case out of them. You know, suing a sixteen-year-old kid. Yeah. yeah, the RIAA. Tried suing a 16-year-old kid for having, you know, you know, gigabytes of MP3s on a hard drive or something like that. What good does that do? Now, it made them look really bad, and it was a stupid thing to do. Like, you know, you've got to, there's a better way to fight this and, and to deal with the idea. They, I mean, the real issue I think people have with the music industry is that even before the wholesale pirate of music, the musicians weren't being paid. Yeah, that's true. It, interestingly, um, gig prices what you get paid for a gig hasn't changed since the 70s hasn't yeah yeah no i mean and the, and the music industry has been a little messed up they said we only need to charge 19 dollars for a cd for a while and then the prices never went down and and they were very slow to come to the online market and and things like that i i you know it's complicated whether they did the right thing or not because certainly the, there's a lot more music being purchased now uh, you know, I, I think piracy rates are going down. No, 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 music, no, no, no. But, There's uh, not a lot more music being purchased now. There's a lot less being purchased. There's a lot more being consumed. And, it, well, maybe there's more being purchased if you consider microsense, you know, streams well, on I mean, Spotify. Well, things like iTunes and things like that. I guess, no, iTunes but, is dying. Um, sales on iTunes are down. Um, streams are, are where it's at. You know, people are basically using things like Spotify, Spotify and Pandora and, and those places. And um, those are those pay micro pennies to uh, mm -hmm. artists. Yeah. So I've I've basically resigned to not not selling. You know, that's it. So I, I'm I'm pretty much giving up trying to make money on selling stuff. Just giving it away. That's it. Uh, should we talk a little bit about the licensing models around uh, software patents and things? Especially when you talk like this seems to be the other side of. You've got the software patent crew, and then you've got the open source world, and they have their own licensing, like the Apache license. Does that actually make any sense? Is that the solution? Should everybody just be using Apache licenses for their software? Um, you seem today, Richard, to want to have a one answer to, to things. Right. The, uh, that's, that's, that's another thing that's tough. I think the Apache license works very well for a lot of people, and a lot of people like it better than the... Uh, um, you know, the, the, the free software foundation, uh, license that, that, that sort of binds Linux, right? That, that prevents the use kind of of Linux in a commercial environment, right? right? I mean, Apache's a little bit, um, friendlier license to, to be part of a hybrid offering, right? Which, which seems to have bear a little more resemblance to reality in, of, of the marketplace, right? So, I mean, I, I think that that's a, you know, that's a perfect instance, um, for, uh, for licensing. And, and remember, when you're talking about software licensing itself, that actually has to do with copyright more so than patents, right? That, that, that comes back to the Crescent example of, of my actual work, my actual implementation. If you're wholesale cutting and pasting my work into your work, you know, what are my rights there? And so, right. you know, in the, in the, in the, in the creative world, that's Creative Commons, which is the equivalent of the Apache license, right? And, uh, you know, in the world of software, Apache licenses become quite popular or variants on it, right? Um, and, and, you know, I think sometimes that works and sometimes it doesn't. And it sort of depends on what your underlying business model is. I mean, there are still people trying to sell their software. 
those other people that are trying to give it away and sell services, right? Right. And, uh, you know, I mean, one of the complicated things about these varying business models is that people come up with them as business models, but then later define them as righteous, right? I mean, I, you know, I could, huh. I could, I could decide that I'm going to give cars away for free, right? And, uh, but that in return, you're going to sign a service agreement with me, right? Because I still got to eat, I still got to pay my mortgage, but sure. I'm going to give you a free car. And, uh, and, but in return, you're going to buy a five year maintenance agreement for me. And that's how I'll make my money. Right. And so uh, that's a legitimate business model and it's not that far off the mark. Right. I mean, the new cars we buy aren't that profitable. Right. I mean, most people say <laughs> that, that, uh, car dealerships sell new cars in order to create used ones. Yes. But the, the, um, <laughs> so I, that's my business model. Okay. So now what I'm going to do, let me make, let me sweeten this with my rhetoric. My marketing rhetoric is, I am a giver and an altruist, and that's why I give away cars for free, right? And and so now I'm I'm uh, I'm better than the people that sell their cars, right? Um, because I give mine away for free. Uh, okay, and so now that I've established that I'm, uh, you know, high-minded, I really don't think I should have to pay for spark plugs, right? Mm. I mean, I, you know, why should I have to pay for these spark plugs? Because I do this public good of giving away cars for free. I mean, I know that I'm not giving any of my service revenue to the spark plug manufacturer, and that's how I'm actually making my money. But, hey, I'm doing this altruistic thing of giving cars away for free. Why should I have to pay for spark plugs? Yeah. And, and I think, unfortunately, that's kind of the attitude that starts to evolve uh, among some in the industry is that, you know, hey, I'm, you know, I've decided that the best model for me is to give my software away for free. And because I've made that decision, um, I, I now attach some righteousness to it, and therefore, um, n- any, none of the inputs to my work uh, should cost me anything. And I, and I think that's a dangerous trend. Well, this idea that if the that business model works for you means that everybody should be using it, anybody who isn't using it is somebody you should attack. Pretty twisted. Well, no, that's exactly right. And and you know, I, you know, as we mentioned with the recording industry, there are already problems that artists weren't getting well compensated, right? But if you look at the movie industry. You know, when I make a typical movie, uh, I'm, I am paying a lot of people, uh, a lot of people, right? I'm, I'm, you know, there's people, there's makeup artists, there's carpenters, there's costumers, there's locations, there's et cetera. I'm, I'm spending a bunch of money and, and paying a lot of people and, and sending those people home with salaries. And, you know, I can't tell the makeup artist, um, hey, why don't you make your money on live events? Right. I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm an input into a system. And, and so if that system can't make money, it can't pay me. And that, and that alternative business model that we all want to righteously proclaim that people should adopt doesn't apply to the downstream participants in that ecosystem. Right. Yeah. And, and that's just sort of respecting the differences there. Each of those methods actually does make sense. And so, I mean, I, you know, and so not, there isn't one size fits all for any of this stuff. No. Right? And, and I guess that's, I, that's really the point. And, uh, you know, I think that we should be, I think the best thing, even for people that want to get a patent, is stricter um, patent evaluations on the way in, right? Because that will give me more certainty that my patent will be of value down the road, right? If I have more confidence in the quality of the patents that come out of the back end of the system. Aren't and you so, really fighting big money, though, Jonathan? I mean, doesn't it seem that way? And people have influence and power and, you know, they get their patents in and how do these crazy patents get in in the first place? It must be influence. Well, no, I mean, I don't, I I don't think there was anything that was untoward at the time. I think it was a explosion in uh, venture capital and investment um, that just led to all kinds of patenting at, at a time when the patent office wasn't prepared for it. Right. So they never attribute to malice that which can be explained by incompetence. So you That's think right. so you think the patent office is more competent nowadays or are they still I believe I believe that they are I at least for the time being they don't have any of their fees being diverted they have all the fees that they're charging or actually spending mm. and they've done a lot to um allow the outside world the communities of people that might know more than them to participate in the system Cool right and that was part of the problem before is that you would be surprised down the road they got a patent for what right but but now it's published you know, oh, they're applying for a patent for this. Oh, well, here, I just found this thing that CompuServe did 20 years ago that does the same thing. So I, you, you shouldn't, you know, give them this patent, right? 
So, I mean, I, I think that there's a, a, an increase in humility, an increase in expertise, and an increase in resources that have led to a much more uh, thorough evaluation of patent applications on the way in. And I, I think we'll see the fruit of that in the patents that appear over the next 10 years, but we're still dealing with the patents that were awarded in the late 90s. Yeah, but it, the, those patents are now expiring. I mean, the .NET boom is more than 10 years old. No, that's right. And, and so because, and that's why I was saying, when we talk about patent trolls, you know, most of the patents owned by those folks are 15 years old. So there is, there is at least some light at the end of that tunnel in that those patents will become irrelevant, hmm. uh, you know, at year 20. And so the question is, what, what things should we do now to, to, without undermining the patent system as a whole, what should we do now to kind of fix um, you know, how patents are litigated? What, what should demand letters look like? How much transparency should there be? How much detail should there be so that you can really make an assessment of whether you are even infringing on the patent? You know, setting aside whether or not you think it's a good patent or not. I mean, half the time you, you don't even know what patent they're talking about, and so you don't know whether you've infringed on anything, right? And so, you know, making that process a little saner is, is I think, the focus of the reforms that are happening now. And, and hopefully the reforms of 2012 are, are, are having the long-term effect of, of decreasing the number of, of what we would consider, you know, uh, specious patents getting out of the system. And we're not going to know that for a few years. It's only testing it that really figures that out. That's right. I mean, it's, it's going to just be time that uh, it appears to be the case. It appears as though they're turning down more than they're accepting now. And, and you know, part of it was the incentives. I mean, uh, at the time... Uh, patent examiners were incented based on the patents that they approved, right? And and so there was an incentive to approve things too. And so changing those incentives around. And I think there's more that can be done still. And I think it's really where we should focus a lot of our effort is on that front end, the patent evaluation side of things to really clean the system up. And I and I just I'm concerned about throwing the baby out with the bathwater um, because we let the system get a little out of control. You know, well, it, should should the Supreme Court go all activist on this particular case and kill software patents, we're going to get to revisit this in a big way. Mm-hmm. I think that's probably right. It'll probably be a good time to have another .NET Rocks episode yeah. on it. <laughs> now, from a very practical standpoint, would you would you ad- advise people, you know, be careful innovating, or should just go ahead and innovate and put your software out there and and don't worry about it and just wait until you get the letter to worry about whether you've infringed somebody's patent? I think in most cases, uh, that that's exactly what you should do. I mean, it's a, uh, uh, to be honest, um, most of the true infringement cases that are in the courtroom, people were knowing what they were doing when they were doing it yeah. and made a decision not to pay the patent license. And, okay. and, and the argument could be made, they did that on purpose with the intention of fighting it because they didn't think it was a legitimate patent. And, and good on them, but I mean, it's the, the, the number of incidences in which people are just sort of, oh, I never knew there was a patent on this. I mean, most of those, most of those cases are, uh, are not real, right? And so, uh, even when you get a demand letter, I think you should sow it to somebody, but if it lacks any kind of reference to any process that's in your software or anything specific, um, I, I think the odds of you needing to pay a lot of attention to it are pretty low. Mm, okay. That's good to know. Jonathan, can you point us to any resources online that uh, if there's anything we can read more or do? Uh, I sure can. Uh, We've put up a page for your listeners at bit.ly slash demand LTR, all one word, bit.ly slash demand LTR. B-I-T dot L-Y slash demand LTR. Okay. So this is a a letter that we're, that we're supposed to read over and, uh, and check yeah, out. It's, if you're interested in in uh, in knowing more about this, then uh, this is a letter that's that's basically uh, talking a little bit about demand letters and uh, some of the reforms around them, and uh, it'll be a way to to stay informed and and to make yourself heard if you've got an opinion on this. Wow, stuff. an app developer's guide to patent demand letters. I like it. Keep calm and carry on. Awesome. Thanks, Jonathan. My pleasure. Always great talking to you. Likewise. And we'll see you next time on Donnet Rocks.
Dotnet Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Pwop Studios, a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and of course in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one, recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time. Got a transmitter band.